Hey everyone, this is Patrick with Purity for Life. To understand how the spirit of Babylon works its way into our thinking, we must understand how Satan uses men to help promote his goals. There have been many examples of such men and women throughout the ages, but the first was Nimrod, the founder of Babylon. Nimrod successfully subjugated people groups and formed them into cities he could control, but he knew that he needed to do something more to solidify their compliance. And so it was here that he built the world's first ziggurat, later known as the Tower of Babel. Thousands of years later, our world has gotten a lot more complex. There are so many ideas, religions, cultures, and even organizations that all offer a way for man to unify under something or someone that isn't Yahweh. And if we aren't careful, any of those influences can come in and steal our affection away from the Lord. The American culture holds more sway in the average Christian's life and in the average Christian's heart than the Word of God. And that is why they are so vulnerable to mm -hmm. being led astray into something false. Today we look at Nimrod, the founder of Babylon, and what his legacy has been to mankind, and how we see that playing out, even in the lives of some professing Christians today. Thanks for joining us for episode four of our series, Babylon, the seat of Satan's power. If any organization hopes to accomplish anything of meaningful value, there must be a strong unity of purpose in the hearts and minds of those who work together. There must be a recognition that the goal is more important than the personal agendas of the individual and that the community is of higher value than any one person. Over the years, the Lord has established a very godly atmosphere and working environment at Pure Life Ministries. Each of the 45 employees strives to emulate Jesus Christ in his humility, his love, and his passion for righteousness. This common purpose is the greatest reason that we have so little strife in our community. What makes this unity striking is the fact that our backgrounds are so diverse. We come from all over the nation, and even more remarkable is the fact that our denominational backgrounds range from anywhere from Anabaptist to Pentecostal. I believe the culture the Lord has established in our midst here goes right along with what the Apostle Paul cited in his epistle to the Philippian church. He said his joy would be made complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He then went on to explain this could only come about as each person lived unselfishly and humbly. He described Jesus Christ as being the perfect role model of these godlike qualities. However, we should take note that Satan never misses an opportunity to imitate the ways that God operates. Of course, this is always with his own perverted twist. And the effectiveness of having people united in spirit under the direction of a strong leader has not been lost on him either. 
Over the centuries, he has utilized ambitious men to accomplish his own goals many times. Take Alexander the Great, for instance. When he conquered a nation, he used the Greek language and culture to assimilate each new people group into a new homogenous society. This was known as Hellenization. Antiochus Epiphanes, who would later rule a part of the vast domain Alexander had brought into Greek control, was such a fanatical advocate of Alexander's Hellenization methods that he did everything within his power to stamp out the Jewish worship of Yahweh. Caesar Augustus would later take over the Hellenized world, establishing Roman rule of law and forming the longest lasting empire in human history. These are only a handful of wicked men with designs on conquering the world. There have been many others down through the centuries. To discover the first would-be world ruler, we must return to the book of Genesis, where we find the story of Nimrod, grandson of Ham. And just like his grandfather, Nimrod had rejected obedience to the one true God in favor of a course of self-determination. We're told that Nimrod was a mighty hunter, meaning he was a mighty warrior who mustered an army from the line of Ham and began conquering various tribes that were scattered across the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia. Rather than leading people to obey the commandment the Lord had issued to his forefathers to multiply and scatter throughout the world, he formed people groups he had conquered into six separate cities specific locales where citizens could congregate together, establishing their own culture with its distinctive collective character. It was in the newly formed city of Babylon that he established his headquarters. Nimrod successfully subjugated people groups and formed them into cities he could control, but he knew that he needed to do something more to solidify their compliance. And so it was here that he built the world's first ziggurat, later known as the Tower of Babel. I wrote the following in my book, Intoxicated with Babylon. Apparently Nimrod perceived that in order to succeed in his insurrection, he would need a powerful force to unite his diverse subjects. Perhaps this was an additional motive for building the Tower of Babel. Not only would it rise higher than any future flood, but it would also serve as a focal point for a new religion. The tower would serve both as a magnificent attraction to draw people from all over the world, as well as a temple to gods of their own choosing. His people would no longer be confined to worship only the great Jehovah who caused the flood. Nimrod's new temple would allow people to worship a host of gods. It's probable this was the result of a brilliant revelation. Jehovah was only one of many gods. Of course, Nimrod might have told his followers, Jehovah is the god of the Semites, the descendants of Shem. But surely there are many other deities that affect the lives of mankind. It seems that the founder of Babylon presented a vast array of gods to whom his subjects could appeal for help. Besides the obvious fact that his world religion was not built with the idea of serving and worshiping the Lord alone, he played on people's fanciful notions that there were actually a variety of gods, each with its own local realm of influence and each with its own particular powers. 
His new religion would be much different than that of the Semites. Rather than uniting together in humble submission to the will of God, these people would create their own religion based on their own whims. In fact, their gods existed primarily to aid, empower, and accomplish their own desires. One can see the power associated with unity of purpose by what the Lord said when he saw what Nimrod was doing. Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, God said, and now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. That is the power of unity, whether it is under the rule of Jesus Christ or under the rule of some satanic despot. Nimrod was the first of numerous antichrists who have plied their trade down through the centuries. He was also the first antitype of the coming world ruler soon to appear on the world stage. And perhaps for the first time since those days, a truly unified global community under a single leader is actually feasible. Powerful technologies have been utilized to largely undo the confusion God created at Babel. Mankind is unifying under a set of humanistic principles that allows everyone to do what is right in his own eyes and serve a God of his or her own choosing. Relativism has both denied objective truth and claimed that in this philosophy alone objective truth is found. There is a certain degree of wisdom in these new trends, but I would propose that it is an earthly, demonic wisdom. The underlying principle fueling this new form of radicalism is the exact same desire that inflamed Nimrod, the desire to throw off God's right to demand obedience to his authority. The entrance of Jesus Christ into the world system of his day was the most monumental event of history. He brought spiritual light into a world that had long since been darkened by the sin and rebellion of mankind. Unregenerated humans hate that light because it exposes the ugly reality of what they are really like inside. And that ugly reality has coalesced into a corporate consciousness that is now growing in strength around the world. Satan has every intention of imposing on mankind his own evil principles and values. What he failed to realize through Nimrod, he will accomplish through the Antichrist. Everything is nearly in place, and it will all begin in the inward lives of human beings. As Christians, we're at risk of being polluted by the spirit of Babylon because we must live out our lives around it every day. Through that daily exposure, our thoughts and beliefs can easily be manipulated and changed. All the enemy really has to do is get a hold of us by tapping in to our desires. And that's what our next interview is all about. Pastor Steve and I sit down, and he shows us how easy it is to create a form of Christianity that allows us to have anything we want, even if it's something as wicked as sexual sin. So, Pastor Steve, in the first segment, you talked about Nimrod, who is a type of the Antichrist, the leader who will unite humanity to rebel against God. And 
Um, He certainly did that in his day, but he's also a foreshadow of things to come. And you mentioned that he's a political leader, but you also said that he was a religious leader. And you said something that was kind of interesting. You said that he helped people create a religion based on their whims. And I think that's really relevant for people today. So that's what we want to talk about. So thanks for coming in. Yeah, well, I'm happy to be here. Um, Nimrod did have, I think, some kind of an innate sense about what people wanted. And he provided that through the fertility cults and so on that were birthed there at the Tower of Babel. And that is the sort of thing that we are already seeing occurring within the Christian church today that people are, well, let me put it this way. There is enough complexity and room for different interpretation about things that Scripture says about the Christian life that it's easy for false teachers to get in and build something on something the Scripture says, and just like what they do is they exaggerate one thing at the expense of others, and so just build something up and to make it look very big, and especially if people's hearts want it to be that way, then that's how false teachers attract adherence. And, you know, Jeremiah talked about in his day, the lying pen of the scribes that had made the law of God into a lie. I mean, that is a profound thought, really. You know, that there it is in its perfection, in its pure truth, and somehow by the way they painted it and Mm -hmm. presented it, they had corrupted it and twisted it into being something completely different Mm -hmm. than what it was intended to be. And so... You know, of course, Jesus also said much the same to the Pharisees. And Paul, we all know in 2 Timothy, said, For the time is coming, and that is referring to today, the last days leading up to the return of Christ, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, their own desires, Mm -hmm. and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And that is what we are seeing um, really increasingly so over the last 50 years or so. And I think that now the big issue is that the reason why this has taken such a hold in the church is really comes down to a very simple thing, that the American culture holds more sway in the average Christian's life and in the average Christian's heart mm-hmm. than the Word of God. Mm. And that is why they are so vulnerable mm-hmm. to being led astray into something false. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that paints a really good picture of how it's playing out in our day so that people can relate what you were talking about to what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do want to hone in because this talk is hopefully going to be played for the guys in our residential program, um, but also people out in the world who are coming to us for help. So I want to talk about people in sexual sin. Are they more susceptible to being deceived in this kind of a way? Yes, definitely, because the sexual addict is 
living his life to please his self-life, his flesh. That's what the primary focus is of his life. He may go to church, he may call himself Christian, all of that, but really he's living for his sexual pleasures. So that is creating in him an enormous void of truth. Mm. But there's something else. I, I uh, One of the guys here sent me an email the other day, and I read it, and it's so captured me. I wanted to read it here in this setting because it's focused mostly on teenagers that have been raised in the church. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the primary focus of it, but it is so relevant to Christian sexual addicts. Let me just read some of this. I think this is a coming from maybe a podcast or an article or something, and it's this guy talking about someone else's book. He says, so for generations now, Americans' primary concern has been themselves. In his 2005 book, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, sociologist Christian Smith coined a now-famous term to describe the religion of most teens in the U.S. He called it moralistic therapeutic deism. One aspect of moralistic therapeutic deism is the assumption that the purpose of religious faith is, quote, providing therapeutic benefits to its adherents. The average teen, according to Smith, doesn't view humans as existing to do the will of God. Hmm. Rather, they view God as existing to meet human needs. What appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teens is essentially about feeling good, happy, secure, at peace. And so it's all about the subjective well-being mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sense, and that's what the, their Christian experience is all about, rather than obeying God, glorifying God, you know, and finding His will and living it out. Yeah, so when some desire comes along, like sexual sin or really anything, that's what's meeting their need and fulfilling their desires, and so they're going to say, well, I should go for that. They haven't said that life is about putting those things to death and living for the Lord. Yeah, and it's that force of, I mean, I want to say pressure, but I don't mean it necessarily just like peer pressure, but it's this force of influence on their lives that is superseding what the spiritual influence should be. Mm -hmm. So let's kind of get it down to maybe the practical level um, so that people can do some self-reflection and see where maybe this is playing out in their lives. Um, So what are some of the most common ways that a professing Christian man who is in sexual sin can recreate Christianity into something that lines up with what he wants? Well, I think um, there is an aspect of the church that has been developed and built up and has grown over the years, and I'm referring to the hyper-grace movement. Mm -hmm. And it all really began in seminary years and years ago with a certain kind of human reasoning logic, and it went something like this, since God loves his people and since a Christian cannot lose his salvation, it doesn't really matter what he does or how he lives his life. Mm -hmm. So that logic formed the basis of a new way of viewing Scripture. You know, it created a lens. So when you read things like 
people who do such and such and such and such shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, yeah, you know, but see, that becomes real diminished mm-hmm. because this becomes very huge, mm-hmm. this lens. You know, God is a God of grace, and that becomes everything. Well, God is a God of grace, of course, and it is everything, but not the way they've corrupted it into this licentiousness. So you got a guy that's dealing with sexual sin, and he comes into a church culture that is saturated with this grace message, hyper-grace message, Mm -hmm. I should say, and it just feeds right into what he wants to believe, which is it's okay with God. He understands my struggles, you know? He understands why isn't he coming through if he wants me to be Mm -hmm. pure? Why isn't he setting me free, you know? And it, it forms the basis for all these assaults against God's character instead of a a real sincere reflection on a person's walk with the Lord. I definitely see how that played out in my own life, so I can definitely relate to that. Um, I also heard Paul Washer recently, he gave a sermon and he talked about how he would listen to these Reformed Christian men talked about all this really good doctrine, but then they go and talk about watching some really corrupt movies, and there's this disparity there. And That reminded me of something you've talked about before, which is we can get so hung up on having good doctrine that that can kind of be our religion and we can live any way you want. So would you see that as another way that men can create a religion based on what they want? Sure. Yeah, that's a good example, actually, because I know there's a lot of people, especially in the Reformed side of the church, that do that, young people that get all excited about the the doctrines and the traditions and the teachings, you know, and all that, and get really into it with their heads and, and approach it academically. And it's somehow that they tie their Christian experience and their God being pleased with their lives with the degree that they have bought into the doctrinal system. You know, so since they are fully in, then certainly God is pleased with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, okay, yeah, I've got these struggles on the side, but the important thing is that I believe what's right, and I believe, mm-hmm. you know, this and this and this, and that becomes bigger than the reality of their life with God. Mm-hmm. And really, they're showing by the way they live and talk that they're more in love with the things of the world than in love with the Lord. Well, it can be that way, yeah. Now, you know... I mentioned the reform, but I'm there are many godly reform people, right. so I don't mean yeah. to like oh, yeah. throw them all under the bus at all. <laughs> I don't mean that because there are very many sincere young people who really do walk with the Lord and are fighting mm-hmm. their flesh and so on, but there are others who right. have done what you're describing. Yeah. So in order to avoid falling into that, people need to be able to see what they're doing or not doing that um, fosters that kind of creating their own religion. So what is it that people do or don't do that makes them very vulnerable to that temptation? Well, of course, our audience is mainly people who either have come out of sexual sin or are still struggling with it or whatever. And one thing that needs to be said very loudly is that sin is a liar. Mm-hmm. And anyone who is involved in unrepentant, ongoing sexual sin mm-hmm. cannot have a grasp of truth. Mm-hmm. They may have a grasp of the tenets of the faith, and they believe in the tenets of the faith and, and all of that. But truth 
is something that you have to live, and you can only grasp it in your soul to the degree that you are actually living in it. And when you are in the midst of constant, ongoing sin, of really of any kind, you know, you just can't absorb truth because you've got, you're living a lie. But let me go back to what this guy was saying, this quote. Okay. That I, let, let me just read a little bit more of this because it also really plays into this. He said, The prevailing model of ministry in the U.S. for the past generation has reinforced this cultural value. Much preaching is focused on the felt needs of hmm. listeners. This style communicates that the value of the scriptures and ultimately the gospel itself is what it can do for me. This means that while the church has not created the American preoccupation with me, it has certainly reinforced it. If we are encouraged to think about our relationships with God and the church in terms of what's in it for me, it's only natural that we approach the Bible the same way. And you guessed it, this tendency can cause us to misread the Bible. And he's just right on with that mm-hmm. statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so easy for us to want to misread the Bible and to interpret things in that way that goes right with what we want. And we could probably talk about, you know, dozens of ways of how you could protect yourself from going down that route. But can we just keep it simple and just talk about what are some of the most important things that you've seen that help protect us from that temptation? Well, I'll just keep it to three things, and two of them are things I'm always railing on about, which is being in the Word of God, being in the Word of God, being in the Word of God, mm-hmm. you know, really saturating yourself with it because the Bible will create a framework of thinking. Mm-hmm. It will create its own lens to see life through. Mm-hmm. So it's so important to be in the Word every day. Mm-hmm. You know, and not just five minutes. I mean, spend some time in it. Right. And secondly, prayer, because prayer is what breathes life, not only into the Word, but into our own personal daily life. It brings the life of God in, you know, as we're doing life out there, and it allows the Holy Spirit to speak to us and keep us on track. Mm-hmm. And a third thing I'll just mention also is being willing to be absolutely brutally honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. Instead of the way the flesh tends, which is to flatter ourselves and to be drawn to preachers that will flatter us, Mm -hmm. meaning preachers that are always, you know, given these uplifting messages and it's all, you know, everything's positive and all that. That's what the flesh wants. But rather than going in that direction, just... God, speak to me. Search out my heart. Mm. Show me anything that's in me that would lead me astray. I need to know it, Lord. Mm-hmm. And having that mindset going through life is really, man, well, those three things together yeah. will protect anyone from going astray. And that honesty, it kind of sounds like what you're saying is being honest with ourselves is going to the Word and letting it search us and being honest with ourselves when we look at what it says, like the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom, and going to God in prayer and being honest, asking Him to be honest with us and not just focusing like that article was talking about uh, with 
asking him about our what we want. Yeah, not not allowing ourselves to buy into that cultural thing of me first. Yeah, I mean, you got to be honest and be willing for God to show you where you're not right mm. and where things need to change. You've got to be willing to do that. And if you are, God will show you and help you. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming in. And I think our next segment is going to help guys see how that plays out in different people's lives. Okay. Amen. For our final segment, I want to pull out just a small part of the roundtable discussion we did for this episode. And I actually got to participate in that discussion. I sat down with David, one of our counselors, and Tyler, who heads up our construction work. And we discussed how each of us reshaped Christianity into something that allowed us to have anything the world had to offer, including sexual sin. Now, we're cutting into the interview at the end of my answer to a previous question where we had been talking about how we would fight against the Word of God whenever we were confronted with the truth about our sin. Because that got us talking about how in the residential program, the Word of God was immensely impactful in changing us. And I think that goes right along with what Pastor Steve was saying and will help give you some examples of what he was talking about. I really elevated my own thinking Mm. above Mm. the Word of God through what other people were saying. I remember seeing people just talk about things like being drunk, and I, I remember hating that person for talking about it. And I remember someone talking about homosexuality and I like just the seething hatred. And that's how I redefined it was by my own pride and saying Mm. that I was better than other people. But Mm. then in the program, that kind of the next thing is how did that begin to change? And I guess the first part of that for me was that I had to be humbled. The Lord really had to deal a Mm. death blow to my pride. And he did that by, you know, my losing my job and Mm -hmm. just being shown that everything I had built up, this image and everything was garbage Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like just totally worthless. And it was, it was hard, but it brought me into a lowly place where I could receive, like finally hear those verses and agree with them. But it's kind of funny because the things that stood out to me from the program weren't the verses about sexual sin. It was about uh, worry. Hmm. Um, that was the thing. Every time I go into my counseling session, my counselor would be, I'd pour out all these thoughts and all these feelings and all these fears. And my counselor would be like, so what are you doing? And I'd be like, I'm worrying. And he'd say, what does the Bible say to do? Don't worry. So what is that? Sin. So what do you need to do? Repent. And it but I was at a place where I could agree with that rather mm-hmm. than arguing. And I think that that really was the beginning of coming under mm. the word, beginning to say cuz for so long I'd pursued what I wanted no matter what, but I began to say with the help <laughs> the help of the Lord and my counselor to say no. And I think that's really what started to change for me. Hmm. Yeah, the Lord definitely had to humble me in the program as well. And for me specifically was spiritual pride. I mean, it's it's crazy. If it wasn't so evil, it would almost be laughable. But 
just like coming in, I remember just like mm-hmm. judging everyone, like judging the way the service mm-hmm. was done, mm-hmm. judging people around me. And it was really spiritual pride and I was completely blind to it, but it's just like somehow I thought I was better than everyone because I had quote unquote, like this better understanding of, you know, biblical doctrines. And in a sense, like I, I think I had elevated like the, the smaller doctrines mm-hmm. above like the foundational doctrines in scripture, like, like humility and poverty of spirit and um, mm-hmm. the cross and and just relying on the work of Jesus and, you know, not self-righteousness. And so like the Lord used, definitely used my time in the program to bring me down, to really expose that pride and just expose the reality of, of my heart. It's like, okay, how could I be in this place of thinking I'm better than anyone, but yet I'm here because like I was steeped in sexual sin, like completely mm-hmm. given over to it. And um, it was a painful process, but the Lord, you know, definitely brought me to that place of basically I just had to lay down everything that I thought I knew. Like that was the point that eventually he brought me to that it was like, okay, like obviously something was off in my walk. And, and so I was like, okay, like <laughs> something is wrong in my thinking. So I'm just going to have to like lay that down and start fresh. And really it's like getting into the word of God mm-hmm. um, fresh, you know, like in a fresh way and letting that speak instead of, you know, just relying on my own thinking or like filtering the word through my own understanding, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that, yeah, just thinking about that phrase that Pastor Steve said, creating a religion based on your own whims, but mm-hmm. like I can relate to that, that everything I was thinking was like a lie, mm-hmm. total not biblical truth, but a lot of your the things you were thinking were true mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yet there's still this self-made religion in it. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was, it was very, it was very much self because there was even, even though it's interesting because even though like theologically or intellectually, I wouldn't say I believed in like a works-based, you know, righteousness or whatever. Um, my life like showed that, like I still somehow subconsciously or whatever was, like basing my salvation on performance, you know? And so again, it's just like that deception. And I think it really was rooted in sexual sin. Like I had gone down that path and like opened myself up to that darkness to where then like my whole mind was corrupt. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't even see the word of God in, in the right light, you know? And so, yeah, it was definitely a, definitely a place the Lord had to expose in my life of seeing it for what it was. Was there a moment in the program where like the Lord was like, your works aren't going to cut it anymore and really kind of like cut you down in that way? Um, in a lot of ways, it was really like a slow process, but there was one specific message by Pastor Steve that I remember when he was comparing the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit to where it was just was very clear to me, like, wow, like I am definitely all about the works of the flesh. So like, how can I think I have anything in God, you know, when all the fruit points to the fact that like it's all of the flesh, it's, it's sin. So that, that message in, in particular, I think really like was a breakthrough moment for me of seeing me, seeing the reality of where I was. Cause I think, you know, coming here again, it was like judging others was thinking that, well, like I hadn't went to some of the depths that others had. And so really it wasn't like, I wasn't in that bad of a place, hmm. but I think that moment of really comparing my life to the scripture instead of to other people, like really exposed the reality of where my heart was. Shocking. (laughs) (laughs) 
How, how was the program for you? Um, I definitely related to what y'all were saying about humility, just the coming down. A very There were two really impactful scriptures for me that came that came to me, came for me <laughs> in the program. One was um, Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty mm. conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. I That was just like mind-blowing revelation. Mm. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to me. Um, and it really really humbled me to see Jesus, just like you were saying, Tyler, like, wow, when I stop comparing myself to other people and start comparing myself to the Word and to the Lord, who's supposed to be our example, like, yeah, okay, I'm really, really off in the program. I began to realize I was really, really off. And I've actually talked to my counselor several times. We're actually somewhat close now. And, um, he said, oh, we've talked a couple of times. I forget what I asked him. And like the one thing he said, like to me about me when I first came in was like, you were just so self-confident. Mm. And the other, the other scripture that really, really, yeah, really came for me. It was the scripture that I um, quoted at my graduation. <laughs> and I'm laughing because at my graduation, Pastor Jordan, who was my counselor, said to me, David, when you got here, you were the most bitter and arrogant person I ever worked with. Or no, he said, you were the most bitter and arrogant person I ever worked with. And then I got up and went to the microphone to give my testimony and it ugly cried for like 30 seconds. (laughs) I remember. Yes. It was ugly. It was ugly. Um, Patrick and I graduated the same day. And and these were the verses that, that I quoted that really just still to this day cut me so deep because I had so developed a just a confidence in myself that this this spoke directly towards me. I'm just gonna read it. And it's Jesus, Jesus speaking. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, mm-hmm. and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I definitely came into the program really with the attitude of, of not needing anything outside of myself. Hmm. And the Lord really, sh- really, really shook that, hmm. like, to my core. Hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting that both of those verses go so against the kind of prosperity culture that you were talking about that you grew up in. For sure. Yeah. As the Lord was shaking that, in, in the program and even after I began to see more clearly like yeah how how I had embraced that that culture I was very self-righteous towards <laughs> that culture but in reality and to this day I'm even still seeing how I embraced that and how vehemently you know this the scripture the Lord goes against self-confidence mm-hmm. boasting in riches boasting in things that we can achieve in this world and he's really, and this kind of goes into the next thing, he's really, really instilling in me just a passion to think, to have an eternal mindset rather than mm-hmm. a temporal one. Yeah. Hmm. I definitely need more of that personally, for sure. Yeah. I think uh, 
one of the scriptures that really impacted me in the program was the passage in um, Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees um, for their lack of mercy, you know, that disciples are plucking grains of wheat Mm -hmm. on the Sabbath and they're like, you know, challenging that. And he says, you know, if you would go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. And that really like cut me deep because I realized that that's what I was doing, that that because I didn't understand God's heart and didn't really understand his mercy, that like I was wrongly judging other people around me. And I think for me, the mercy studies was really a, a key thing in my program that helped me um, like help shift the way I was thinking, like seeing and, and going to the scriptures and actually seeing God's heart really changed the way like I began to see God and other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and was really important for me. And so that, like, ultimately, it helped me come to the Word of God in a different way. Instead of, again, instead of, like, filtering the Word of God through my own thinking, like, learning to lay down and, like, really, like, dig in and study the Word of God to, to know God. Like, instead of to, like, yeah. just bolster up my beliefs or doctrines or whatever, like, to really come in, come, you know, to the Word of God in humility and, like, wanting to learn, like, you know, really know God to really see like his heart. So the word of God has become, you know, very important mm-hmm. and dear to me now where it wasn't so much before. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's sad, but I can think of times like wanting to go to the word of God to like defend an argument, mm-hmm. like, you know, in debating doctrine or whatever, like yeah. that was my, that was my motivation because I wanted to be right. Mm-hmm. And like, I look back now and just like, man, that was so wrong. Like it was so yeah. off. And now it's like the Lord has put in a love for the word because I want to know the author, you know, I want to know God. I mm-hmm. want to know Jesus in a deeper way. So I appreciate, you know, my time in the program and really being pointed to the mercy mm-hmm. of God because that's his heart and that's his will. That really changed things for me. That's it for this week's episode. Next week, we shift our focus from looking at the history of Babylon to looking inward at the hearts of man. We'll discuss what our natural fallen condition is prone to and how we as believers are called to fight against that, to put off that old way and break off from the spirit of the world. God bless and thanks for joining us. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.